This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is Burning Questions, Not People. Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. DiStefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound, we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. If someone you love is struggling with their mental health, you don't have to struggle alone. Call or text 988 to get resources and support from trained crisis counselors who can help you help them. 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Hope has a new number. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. Hi, friends. I'm Tim Whitaker, and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. What's up, friends? Welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. So good to be here with you. On this episode, I have Brandy Miller. She is the host of Reclaiming My Theology, which is which is really an amazing podcast. I really like Brandy. We've talked many times before on Instagram and uh, behind the scenes, and I finally got her on the podcast to talk about her story and, and, and just her shift uh, of her own theological paradigm. So this is a really, really great conversation that I hope encourages you that there are always better ways forward from the evangelical basement. That being said, as always, thank you, friends, for being part of this podcasting community. If you could give us a rating and a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this this episode, that would be so helpful. It helps other people know that they're not alone as they want to navigate uh, really their own journey out of the basement of evangelicalism and into the house of the Christian tradition. And of course, we are a nonprofit organization holding space for thousands of people. If you want to support the work that we do, you can click on the link in our show notes, and uh, and that would just be so helpful. All donations in the U.S. are tax deductible. And do not forget, friends. Philadelphia friends, New Jersey friends, Delaware friends, Pennsylvania friends. I'm coming to Philadelphia February 11th at 3.30 p.m. It's me, Bradley Onishi from Straight White American Jesus, and Blake Chastain from the Exvangelical Podcast. We're going to do a live in-person conversation on the link between deconstruction and Christian nationalism. If you have not listened to my episode with Bradley Onishi, you need to uh, listen to this one, then go back and listen to the one from a few weeks ago. It is so worth it. Bradley is awesome. You can get tickets now at the link in our bio. They are available, uh, and I would love to meet you, so make sure you come out. Again, that's February 11th at 3.30. 
8.30 p.m. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my episode of Brandy. Talk to you all later. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Smart Furniture. This was the company that hooked us up with an amazing table and set of chairs for our live podcast event that we had back in December, and they were wonderful to deal with. They ship nationwide, offer 45-day hassle-free returns, offer in-home delivery and installation because God knows we're not going to lose our mind trying to assemble a desk. And of course, they have award-winning customer support. Thank you so much, Smart Furniture, for providing what we needed for an amazing podcast. Go check out their huge selection at smartfurniture.com. All right. Well, um, I mean, part of me says the same thing every guest, Brandy. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so excited for this conversation. But it's always genuine. Like, I, I, you are a podcaster, so you know how this goes. It is a privilege and honor to interview amazing people, right? Where you're like, wow, this is so cool. And you are certainly no exception to the rule. It is so good to have you, Brandy. Thank you for making time and hopping on my podcast, taking a break from your own. I'm so glad to get to be here. And I totally understand what you're saying. Cause I'm always like, thank you so much. I appreciate you being here. Literally every episode, you could take the same clip probably. And I always mean it every time. Right. Exactly. Also, we have to admit, isn't it nice coming on someone else's podcast and being ready just to talk? Because usually when you're where I am, you, know, you have to ask the questions and pick your conversation moments you know, wisely. But now you as the guest, you get, you get to just to go. And my job is to listen. Oh, it makes me so nervous. I'm not really, yeah, I'm usually so prepared. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I, I do want to start here. I, I mean, I'm trying to think when I first heard of you. Someone definitely sent me your podcast in a DM maybe a year or two ago now. Mm-hmm. And you and I have chatted a few times on Instagram Lives and in the DMs. I've always enjoyed you. I've enjoyed your work. I, I just love your perspectives. Um, and and I appreciate all of that, but I do kind of want to dig into a little bit of who Brandy is because for me, I I gotta be honest, I have a hard time like putting you in like one of my like typical categories in my head, and that could be by design. So I would love to learn a little bit more. Like, did did you grow up in evangelical spaces? Did you grow up as a Christian? And what was your relationship to that that eventually led you to starting a podcast called Reclaiming My Theology? Yeah, it's kind of a long journey, but the short answer is no, I did not grow up Christian in particular. Mm. My family used VBS as like a free babysitting for a week. And my grandma's Christian, but my family was not Christian by any stretch of the imagination. And so there are lots of ways that my introduction to church was actually when I was in middle school because my sister started dating a Baptist pastor's son. And so she immediately thought I was going to hell. And so as an antisocial person who didn't have a lot of friends, I started going to youth group and it was where I found some sense of family. But the Mm. thing I say often is that, well, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, which is not known for being um, particularly diverse. And so I always say that I learned white supremacy and Christian theology at the same time, that my indoctrination into faith and politics happened simultaneously. And so a lot of my background is actually in reformed, highly Calvinistic, apologetics-based. Like I was given the book, uh, A Kingdom of the Cults and the Bible at the same time. So it was uh, like this twofer of why I'm right and why you're wrong. And that was the foundation of a lot of my early background. Okay. So so you, you didn't grow up Christian, but but how old were you when you when you quote unquote got saved, I guess we could say? Like, like how old were you at, at, at that point? Probably about 13. 
Okay. So as really entering your teenage years, you, mm-hmm. you find God, right? That's kind of the, yeah. the term yeah, people totally. use. And, and were you someone who was like, I am all in, like I am committed. I'm in, I'm reading, I'm devoted. What was your journey like starting off at 13 converting to really fundamentalist Christianity, but for our conversation, we could just say Christianity. I mean, I'll just tell you a little story that I think will give you a very good picture of it. Uh, I went with my youth group to Creation Fest, which is this giant Christian music festival at the Gorge in the Pacific Northwest. It's like the mecca of Christian music festivals. Yep. And when we were there with my big old youth group, there was uh, a guy named Josh McDowell who was like full apologetics, like white guy pastor. And I remember that none of my friends knew who he was, but I had been reading his books his apologetics books. And so I put on this like oversized, cause I was like a punk. I liked punk rock, but also I didn't want to be like, I remember shredding a Lincoln park CD cause they talked about drugs and suicide. Right. Like it was just, this is like the way I was coming in. And I, I loved it. Josh McDowell's stuff and his stuff so resonated with me that I walked the far distance from the campgrounds to this like big old tent that was filled with people. And I sat in the very back as a probably 14 year old taking notes at a Josh McDowell <laughs> presentation. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the epitome of being a Christian. So I think ah, that probably wow. gives you a picture of what that, of who I was. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Creation Festival started in New Jersey where I live. And now, yeah. and I actually know the grandson uh, and the family uh, of Creation Festivals. And I've actually played there, ironically, on, <laughs> on the Pennsylvania side. So I'm very oh, familiar with Creation. Uh, and yes, you know, Josh McDowell, for the audience who doesn't know, they probably would know Sean McDowell more at this point. That's his son who does a lot of online stuff, who I must say, for an apologist, I find very respectful of the way he mm-hmm. presents um, his content, which I tend to appreciate. You know, I tend to be in the camp of we can disagree and have good faith dialogue on theological perspectives. And Sean seems, at least from what I can tell, genuine in that. But yes, very. In- OK, so you're 14. You have this punk rock bent in you, you you said, which I really mm-hmm. we'll talk about that in a few minutes. And then you are at a, a music a Christian music festival, one of the biggest ones in the world. And you're like, forget the music, I gotta find Josh McDowell because I'm I'm reading his books and I'm loving them. I'm I'm just inhaling what he's saying. Well, for you at, at that time and kind of I guess maybe going through your teenage years, what was it for you that was so attractive about like that? apologist language, that certainty, Mm -hmm. like what was it for you that was like, yes, I'm gravitating towards this? I mean, I grew up in a pretty unstable family environment, um, Mm. kind of adjacent to domestic abuse and violence, to poverty, to, to all of those things. And so I think that faith gave me security in all of the ways that my background didn't give me security. It gave me identity. It gave me belonging in ways that nothing else had. And I don't, I don't have any problem with that. Like, I think I, I often, as I'm talking with people who are deconstructing or fight, I, I find that people are really mean to their former selves. And I'm like, yeah. yeah, but who I was then was who I needed to be to survive. And so mm. I think a part of it was that stability that it gave me. And honestly, it was just really fun. Like for all the shit we can talk about evangelicalism in the two thousands, there was a lot of fun. And I think that having a thing that was fun and light and consequential insofar as it meant that it um, engaged with hell wasn't actually, didn't feel like it was a burden in my normal everyday life then. Yes, that I concur with a lot of that, actually. Uh, you know, my I grew up in the church. I was pretty much born in the church. And, you know, looking back, I reflect upon, of course, you know, my my youth and my teenage years. I'm like, I had a lot of fun. I had 
at the time, great friends that I was, mm-hmm. you know, very close to. I loved the music scene. I became a, a proficient musician because of the church music scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a lot of good times, you know, like I, I was fortunate where I did not grow up like in, uh, um, my household, even though my parents were, they grew up in, well, they were saved into fundamentalism, were incredibly loving and supportive and, and they did the best with, 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 with what, with what they knew, right? And so, like, I, th- there's a lot of positive things there. And I appreciate what totally. you said about not being so mean to your former self because I think I struggled with that too. Like, oh my God, how did I not see it? But like you said, you're just, you're doing the best you have with what you know in that moment. And that's what I think a lot of people who are listening to this probably did, right? They just thought, yes. this is Christianity. This is the gospel. This is how you defend, quote unquote, the faith, not evangelicalism, but just the Christian tradition. Absolutely. So I read these books. I read Lee Strobel. I mean, I I get it. I listened to Ravi Zacharias when I was a kid. You know, I that's just what I did because I was I wanted to be a good Christian. Was that kind of yeah. how you saw things as well? Um, I don't know. Actually, I think it was more that I like really loved Jesus. Like I mm. loved, I loved, I loved and love God. Like that was, that was a true thing for me. And so I think I felt motivated by, and again, it's hard to parse out what is evangelical guilt and what is love for God when it's like, yeah, I have the classic, you know, anecdotes around, you know, you go to a youth retreat and then they show passion of the Christ and say something to the effect of, your sin did this to Jesus. And if it were only you, Jesus still would have died. You know, it was all of that. But I think that there is a way that the sacrificial love of Jesus did meet me in a really personal way that went beyond the logical theological, even though I was really interested in that stuff. But I think Mm -hmm. that was my way of being devoted was less the emotional and more like, I love Jesus. Therefore, I do everything intellectual that I can to be faithful and to form my life around those things. So even through your teenage years, were you still pretty much in Calvinist spaces or did you eventually kind of end up in more charismatic spaces? Like what was your journey with that? Yeah. So I lived in a suburb of Portland where I kind of came into the faith and then I moved to deep rural Southern Oregon, which is about as racially problematic as I call it the Confederate South of the Northwest. It's like there were, uh, I think six black families in my county. And um, I grew up in a white family. And so it was just like, it's so not diverse, super conservative. My town newspaper, when Obama was running for president, put something in this like little small town newspaper that said he was the antichrist. Like it was so deep red, like, wow, like so red, it's almost black. Like it's just like so, so, so deep. And so I didn't encounter much around charismatic traditions until college. And when I went into college, I was a full-blown, like, I think I would have identified as a tea party, Mm. like tea party politically. And Mm -hmm. so I was, I voted for John McCain and Sarah Palin um, against Barack Obama in the election because I thought he was the Antichrist and it was going to be the end of the world. And I remember hiding in my friends who were a part of a really conservative fraternity on campus, like hiding in their fraternity on election night as they like cried and wrapped themselves in American flags. Like it was, it was like that deep. And it wasn't until I went to college that I encountered people who had any sense of the Holy Spirit or that God could speak. And I was like, well, yeah, duh, God can speak, but it's through the Bible, you know, like just (laughs) toting my Bible around and journaling all the time. And it was through them teaching me how to sit in silence and to pray and to pay attention to more of the intuitive and less the intellectual that brought me into more of more charismatic spaces, which were, I mean, dude, I went from, you know, full Fox news conservatism to house of prayer communities. And so the extremes were really, really broad. 
Um, so you said that that um, your family was uh, the parent people who raised you were white. Is that correct? Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Okay. So and you said also earlier that that they were not Christian, right? Like you grew up in, like in a Christian household. So as right. you got saved as a teenager and went down kind of this rabbit hole until college, what did your family think about about these beliefs? Um, my grandma, since my grandma's Christian and she raised me, yeah. Uh, but more like less like go to church Christian and more like believes in God kind of Christian. Yeah. It didn't really matter. And I think they were just really glad that I had opportunities that came through the church. Like the church gave me a ton of opportunities I would have never had and a good stable environment and things to do. And like, you know, the church did everything that the church should do. I think for my family while doing all the stuff that it shouldn't do for people, like, you know, paid our rent or gave us food baskets or things that we really needed when we were so poor, we could barely survive. And so it was both, it's the tension for me. It's still always the tension of holding those things. Like those people loved me the best they could. Yeah. And damn, did they fuck me up? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, man, that, that kind of sums it up. I think for a lot of folks, you know, I, I also grew up in a very, uh, you know, my, my dad's a, a small business owner in, in construction. So, um, and I was homeschooled. So, uh, for field trips, I would go to work with him sometimes and help him paint houses. And, you know, it would be Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity. I mean, just that whole world, I was mm-hmm. totally brought up in it. Um, and then as I got older, it was Ben Shapiro, et cetera. Okay. So I understand, um, how I understand how that thought process works because I, 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 was brought up in it and that's all I knew and I believed it. And then like you said, it's kind of funny how in this way we're, we have a similar uh, story of, I also grew up more fundamentalist and more Calvinist, but then I found um, a youth group that, that, that needed a drummer. And I said, Oh, I drum. And before you know it, I'm, I'm finding myself in some in a charismatic place where, you know, they're laying hands on me trying to get me speaking in tongues. And I'm like, I just wanted to play rock music and play Hillsong, but uh, this is new. Um, and that, and that was kind of the beginning of at least for, for what it was a very small seed of, Oh, not all Christians have the views that I grew up with when it comes to women in leadership or speaking in tongues. Was that kind of, because you mentioned that you went from Fox News, you know, I'm voting for McCain to House of Prayer, which I think politically they still can interact. But as far as how they, how they present, House of Prayer appears much more free and, and dare I say, liberal. Uh, what was that like for you? I mean, I am a suspicious person by nature. And so when my friends started to be like, you can hear from God, God's still <laughs> speaking now. I was like, I'm sorry, but no, like, that's just not a thing. Yeah. But those people loved, and, and, you know, the other hard thing is that those folks were predominantly people of color and really justice centered. They were all like ethnic studies majors in college. And I would say things to them like, you are so liberal, you've lost the gospel. Like, you <laughs> people of color get what they deserve if they would only pull themselves up by the bootstraps. I was like, a, it was like you were, I was reading a teleprompter of what would, you know, like OAN or something right now, <laughs> like yeah, something right. like that. And, but it was something about their commitment to me. And that I knew a lot about the Bible, but their lives seemed to be better for other people. And so as I watched the way that they loved me and cared about me and cared about the community on campus, I was like, I think there's a gap between what I say I believe, how I make people feel with my faith, and how these people are making me feel with their faith. And so I think that highly relational, loving space made me more open to the charismatic, even if it took me like a full year of being like, going on here you know to come around to even doing contemplative prayer as a concept yeah so what was i mean i'm sure there's many moments but you know what you obviously now you run a podcast called reclaiming my theology 
Um, you know, you say fuck like I do, which means that we're not real Christians anymore. Um, and you know, you and I have talked about stuff uh, that <laughs> I think our former selves would go, "What happened to you? The liberal Absolutely. agenda took you from me." You know, your your mind was so open, your brains fell out, right? So, yeah. um, so what was what was some of the pieces there for you that really made you start thinking? Huh, I'm I'm curious. Maybe there's more than what I thought I was so confident in theologically or politically. Well, I mean, I think I've always been super theologically oriented, right? If I'm lead, if I'm reading Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, Ravi Zacharias at 14, like there's some right. level of like kind of inherent or basic interest in theological things. Yeah. But what happened was my friends kept telling me that God cared about justice and I was like yeah, like the kind where you send people to hell for being bad, you know, like, and I was also going, I was also dual enrolled at a Western Baptist college here in the Northwest, which was brutal. And so I was getting all this theology of, okay, yeah, God's not sending people to hell, but you all start in hell. Then God's so gracious to like pluck some people out of hell who God's predestined and preached, you know, so I'm <laughs> yeah, starting to realize through being at this Western Baptist school, how cruel like if you actually logically take some of these theologies to their end conclusions, the things that you have to believe about God are really, really problematic and yeah. really and things that I don't think we would be comfortable saying. Yeah. And and so I was in those kinds of spaces. And then my friends are talking about justice all the time. And this is it's almost embarrassing how, again, I look back on myself with a lot of both compassion and cringe. Because this is like who I was then. Right. I had a, a non-Christian roommate in college and uh I built like I built a whole ass prayer room underneath my lofted bed in my bedroom. And so I put like a little thing down there and put speakers so I could like listen to worship music and write notes on a big old whiteboard that I'd put down there. And I had my Bible and all of my like cute things that reminded me of Jesus's love for me. And again, I think that's like really beautiful that 18 year old me was that into it. And like there's parts of, I think there's parts of that kind of connection and like emotionality that I do miss sometimes. So I wanted mm. to name that too for people who maybe feel that like, oh, I, I miss the like, the the something about that that feels like it was good for me then. Yes. But I was sitting in my little prayer room one night and I was reading the book of Exodus. And in Exodus 2, it says that God heard the cry of the Israelites, God saw their suffering, and then God knew and acted. And as I was sitting reading, I don't think there's many times in my life where I feel like I've heard like a pressing voice of God. And this was one of those times. Mm. And I was reading that and it felt like the thing that I sensed from God was like, if you want to be about the things that I'm about, you have to care about the things that I do. And this is it for you. Hmm. And what clicked for me was that God cared enough about a people group to invest fully in their liberation, that you have this story that goes through the entire Hebrew scriptures that, that is God trying to liberate a people from ethnic oppression and then make them free. And something just shifted for me where I was like, okay, this is it for me. This is what I, this is what I'm called to do, what I'm invited to do, what I, should be pressing toward. And it was brutal because I was a music major. Like I was, yeah, I was a music major playing performance clarinet and felt like that invitation meant I needed to switch to ethnic studies and study racism in the church, a thing I didn't even believe existed in like six months before. And so it was a right. big shift in my life that came from this very, what well, well, let's, let's use middle school youth group language, a catalytic moment. <laughs> wow. I'm just picturing you in your room, building your prayer room with like Misty Edwards on, because that's IHOP for, you know, all the way through and through, Oh yes. you know, singing my soul longs for you. And then you read Exodus <laughs> 2 and you're like, holy moly, um, something has just clicked, right? Where it's, oh, there's this story about God liberating people, not just spiritually, but physically 
liberating them from oppression of you know the empire uh, i wouldn't say like that back then but that idea sure. right so 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 this thought gets planted inside of your brain and now you think was it really that quick where you're like oh my god my the scales have fallen off so to speak you know i I've, I've had a come to jesus moment where now i can see or was it like that seed took root and then began just to kind of spread over the next few months honestly it was pretty uh my sense of what was happening for me happened immediately but okay. my living that out happened yeah. much more slowly so having to go to my friends and apologize for all the weird conservative talking points I'd thrown at them, asking questions. And I had told them, I was like, "You, I, this ethnic studies program, I hate it because you all use such exclusive language while trying to be hyper-inclusive that no one can join you, which I actually is still a critique of the progressive movement in a lot of ways that language becomes the primary barrier to a lot of people being able to do justice from the places that they're at. But it took a long time for me to go, oh shit, I said I would never take an ethnic studies class. I said I would never study racism. And here I am two weeks from enrolling in classes the next year, like enrolling in all of these courses that I had no desire to engage in. Hmm. Okay. Wow. So this, this moment happens. Let's talk first about maybe now with like this new perspective that you're thinking about as you're reflecting upon, you know, you mentioned it earlier, it was like a teleprompter. You were just reading and reciting these talking points. What was it like hearing those same talking points on, on this other side of like, and, you know, I think the Bible actually might be clearer than I thought about this and that I haven't been living it out fully uh, in my desire to follow Jesus and love Jesus well. What was it like now being on that side, hearing those talking points? Well, I mean, I think it was challenging because it meant the loss of the respect of my previous community. Yeah, It meant that I had done the very thing that most conservative churches are afraid that Christian kids will do, which is go to a liberal school and then become a liberal. Right, right. And like backslide totally. so far that you're no longer a Christian. And so I became the case study of everything that my community had warned me about becoming. Yes. And I was finding that my faith was becoming more and more dynamic in real time. Like I had never loved Jesus more. I had never heard from Jesus more. I had never read the Bible more. Yeah. Yet there was this like rejection on this side where I was doing all of the things. The thing I say, and this was true when I worked for an evangelical campus ministry for 10 years, was that I was given a lot of tools to understand the Bible and who God was. And when I took those tools and applied them to different contexts, it was as though everyone was screaming, well, no, 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 not like that. And so oh, yeah. I think that was a lot of the cognitive dissonance I was experiencing at that time was applying very similar principles, like applying love, but love meant acceptance and not evangelism. And that those were incompatible realities for my previous life and the life that I was attempting to live moving forward. I mean, I do find it in a way kind of like fundamentalists aren't even good fundamentalists. No. <laughs> you know, like like if you do take, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, like a fundamentalist tells you to take the Bible, you have a pretty radical, you know, worldview there, right? And I, I again, I, I can imagine many folks listening to this, including myself, saying, yes, exactly, right? All I'm doing is, is doing what they told me, study the scriptures, don't take their word for it, study for our own or ourselves, you know, listen to other perspectives, et cetera. And we did, and it's like, well, I think this perspective is probably a better way of living than than this fundamentalist perspective that I grew up in. And then they go, well, not like that. You know, I didn't yep. mean like that. And that's kind of my critique, I think, even with like evangelical culture in general, is that they present as 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 a community, and I'm I'm really, you know, big picture, big tent here. Sure, but I'm I'm really uh, I found that what they'll say is, oh, we love questions. 
ask all the questions you want, but we already have the answers for you. So it's almost like a false sense of curiosity because once you say, well, I'm not convinced biblically, quote unquote, that hell uh, is eternal and conscious forever. They go, well, that's the wrong answer. Like, hey, we, we, we explored it and we have the answer for you, right? Um, okay, so so this is actually fascinating. So you have this big moment, and you're right. You become this. You become the very thing that they warned you you were going to do. But it's it's it it makes at least for me so much more sense that I'm like, yeah, and like yes, actually, when you start taking this stuff seriously, you do find that it, it makes even more logical sense uh, <laughs> to, 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 to maybe hold some of these perspectives. So for, okay, so let's get kind of back to your story and kind of keep going with this. So at this point, what were you involved with the church? Was it, you know, charismatic evangelical? What were you doing when you had this epiphany? I was still, I went to a Baptist church all the way through college. Okay. Yep. And then I joined a non-denominational sneakers, preachers kind of, church even after I graduated. So I was still engaged in very similar spaces, yeah. but my worldview was changing significantly. Yeah. Um, how was it, how was it for you? Like um, the term I use is trying to decolonize myself, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. just understanding that, Oh my God, I, I, as a white man have a lot of privilege and I've heard of that word, but it's a boogeyman word. But actually when you understand it, it's actually quite liberating in a lot of ways um, for you, you know, you mentioned that you um, um, that you had white parents and that you were kind of in this Fox news world. And now you're thinking about things differently. What was that journey like for you trying to reclaim your theology? Frankly, I mean, honestly, it was a huge part. A lot of my academic studies shaped that. And so I went from, again, performance clarinet and wanting to, I wanted to produce Christian music. I had like a music studio built in my room. Like my closet was a studio. My under my bed was a prayer room. I was really in, because I wanted to help make better Christian music, which is still something I'm involved in, but in a really, really different way now than I was before. But that was what I wanted to do. And so when I shifted to ethnic studies, I still had this lens of the church and Bible and everything I was doing and every opportunity I had to engage with that in my coursework, I did. And so like I wrote my thesis on the ahistoricity of Christian theology and applications in church spaces, you know, so like how do churches not do the things they say they're going to do because they're racist? And so Mm. I essentially what happened is I started to gain these frameworks in academia that I was using as lenses to understand theology. And what it made me realize is that I had already pre-applied a ton of lenses to theology that I was going to peel back and unlearn. And so as I learned about what white supremacy was or patriarchy in more profound ways, I was like, oh, patriarchy is a lens that I've been reading the Bible through the whole time. What happens if you remove that lens of patriarchy as much as we're able to Sure. and invite another lens to shape how I might read that? And as I did that, I was like, oh my God, the Bible comes alive in new ways. And I actually love the Bible more when I have more lenses to engage with it with. Yeah. And I'm finding that as I apply different lenses to it, I'm realizing how violent the lenses that I was given were and are. And yeah. when I started to understand theology as violence, as an act of suppression and violence and political and social control, mm. I just had to extricate myself from those worldviews and start to make sense, like to start to form tangible language and processes and worldviews to live outside of those things. Even long weekends are short. So why spend a second of this one on a drink run? Instead, get drinks delivered right to your door with Drizzly. Drizzly is the easiest way to find the best prices on beer, wine, and spirits. So you can get back to lighting those totally legal fireworks. 
Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Because the long weekend will be over before this ad is. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. If someone you love is struggling with their mental health, you don't have to struggle alone. Call or text 988 to get resources and support from trained crisis counselors who can help you help them. 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Hope has a new number. You know, the way I framed it for myself early on as a musician was I thought about it like if if um, Christianity or Christianity, however you want to phrase it, is a song, I was just kind of given like the bass track <laughs> like the <laughs> whole time and taught like, here you go. This is the whole thing and nothing outside of this, nothing else is Christian. And then I start meeting either other theologians or other people who are just in other parts of the Christian tradition and they just like start unmuting these tracks you're like, hey, here's there's a guitar, yeah. there's a vocal, there's a choir, there's a harmony, melody, and you're like, oh my god, this stuff, it, it just it, like you said, it, it really comes alive. And then I found that like I kind of see theologians almost as, as like producers, you know, and some people like a bass heavy mix, some like a drum heavy mix, like me, some like the melody really screaming at you, and you know, we all kind of like are tweaking these things. But that has helped me just kind of think about the Christian tradition mm-hmm. as as something that is much bigger. Than just the one stream I grew up in, and like you said, in some ways, uh, the stream I was a part of uh, was really co-opted by actually those darn cultural forces that they swore they were never a part of, right? Which I think that's is, right. I think that's what maybe for me trying to unpack so much of this is so insidious is that I was really convinced that I was just reading the Bible, that I was yep. just preaching the gospel, that I, I that I was that I was a fish who was not wet. And I was outside of the bowl and said, no, no, the world has it all messed up. But how I read it and my tradition, we're just giving you straight gospel truth. When in reality, like you said, you know, we're all wet. (laughs) Culture does shape how we view things, including the biblical authors. They had cultures too. And the the more we understand that, the more we can make sense of what I would call a very beautiful, complicated, but very beautiful collection of books. Yep. Your hermeneutic was, I'm in the world, but not of it. Not of <laughs> this world sticker thrown on oh, the back I, of your car. I had the shirts. I had My so God. many. <laughs> oh, I got to say, a- side note, they used to have very creative, like well-designed, just cool stuff. And then they just went real like in your face. And I was like, I can't do that. You know, I, I, I like hidden designs that just kind of are, are artistic. I don't like, you know, in your face, not of this world. It's like, yeah, nah, it's or not like, for me anymore. Instead of Abercrombie and Fitch, it's a breadcrumb and fish. You're like, oh my God. <laughs> Gosh. Who is paying this person to make these shirt designs? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so derivative and terrible. <laughs> well, so how did you start the podcast then? Like what <laughs> what what got you to a place where you said, I gotta start a podcast called Reclaiming My Theology? Like what was that moment for you? Honestly, it was kind of an accident. Oh. Uh, after I graduated college, I went into campus ministry working with college students. Mm. And I worked at universities for nine and a half years as a minister to college students. And so I spent a lot of my time doing the spiritual and really the, what I always said is I wanted my students to be holy and hireable. Like I wanted them to have practical skills and to love God. Mm. And as I was leading them, my theology was changing a lot. Um, I was reading new folks. I was outside of academia, but still really unformed in a lot of what I thought. I was still not engaged in politics in any way, which is a huge part of what I do now. And I worked with them for a long time. And as I was trying to build diverse communities, I kept running into the same issues around white supremacy and patriarchy in how students thought about things. Hmm. Like students would come in and the only authority in their lives were like, 
the theologians that their youth pastor said was great, or they would say in Bible studies where I was asking them, well, what do you see in the text? They'd say, well, my youth pastor said this. I'm like, yeah, but what do you see in this? And there was something about how the homogeneity of white evangelicalism had completely capsized students and my own ability to have an imagination for the divine that was bigger than that. And so I worked with students for a lot of years trying to create justice-oriented communities who are actually doing good on campus in the same way that I had experienced my own community. And so I did see these summer justice programs where I'd interns, like bring in student interns up to the hood and like have my friends, you know, lead organizational work parties with them and help them learn about experiences outside of their own. And as I did that, I just gained a lot of experience thinking about and talking about white supremacy and theology. I started to be able to identify really quickly what was happening and then create frameworks for students to engage with those things themselves. And so when the pandemic hit, I had been thinking about writing, someone had invited me to write a book and I had sat for a long time and was just like, I think that books in our culture read as very permanent. Something about the worship of the written word in a white-centered society in a Western worldview says that what is written is the most important. Hmm. And so as I was prayerful and engaged about what I was to do around this idea of writing a book, I was like, I can't write a book. Like, I just, I can't assume that I am that big of an authority on something that I still don't feel confident. I've changed so much in the last 10 years. I don't Hmm. want to be a person who assumes that the way I've changed most recently is who I will become and the thing that people should permanently associate with me and grant authority to those words. And so that's all a very convoluted way to say, I had these experiences with students for almost 10 years that I felt like I needed to articulate. And so I was like, I'm going to do 10 episodes just to commemorate this time that I had with students as I was getting ready to leave campus ministry. And I wanted to talk about these attributes of white supremacy culture that had specifically impacted how students and staff that I was around read the Bible and formed their theology. And so I, you know, originally the working title was Killing White Jesus or Crucifying White Jesus. And I was like, okay, well, that's probably a little too on the nose. (laughs) And so I put a few episodes out and then, or sorry, the week I put the first episode out was the week that the George Floyd protests started. Mm. And so people were really desperate for anything to understand the cultural moment that we were in. And it was the first time for many Christians that they had to face the cultural tide that was coming at them. And so people started listening and I was like, oh shit. Like now I have a thing that feels really important. And I have this moment where I think I can be really faithful to who I've been my whole life and who I've been becoming and create space for people to enter into this conversation in a more gentle way. And so I started it and then, you know, like a hundred episodes later, here we are. Yeah, no, I feel that. Wow, that's fascinating. So maybe while we have some time left, why don't we kind of dig into some of this, um, you know, the white evangelical culture that I was totally steeped in. And obviously, we both know about this term deconstruction. I call it really an explosion. I'm not a big fan of the term itself for a lot of reasons, but it, it, for some people, it works well, and that's and that's totally fine. But I think a lot of people um, in who grew up in evangelical spaces or who were baptized early on in their life, you know, at like age 13, mm-hmm. um, they, they are having this crisis of theology, right? Mm-hmm. Where they are, like you said, they are the best and brightest of evangelicalism. Like, I mean, I was fully from day one, always involved in some form of ministry in evangelical spaces. I did mm-hmm. parachurch ministries. I did worship stuff. I helped plant churches. I had done small groups, you name it. 
I've done it, right? Because we were committed. And then all of a sudden we see 2016 happen or some other moment. But for me, it was 2016. Mm-hmm. And you go, um, hmm, okay, the people who raised me uh, ingraining in my psyche how masturbation is sinful, sex outside of marriage is sinful, pornography is sinful, lust is bad, marriage is sacred, are now mad at me because I won't vote for the guy on his third marriage on the cover of Playboy magazine, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. And then you go, okay, what? I, I It's just topsy-turvy for me. Like, all of a sudden, your world is turned upside down. Um, For you, doing the work that you do and just kind of understanding these systems – have you seen in the past, uh, let's say since 2016, have you seen a real maybe embrace, if maybe toleration, but most, but also embrace of more blatantly like white nationalist viewpoints in these evangelical spaces? Because I feel like I have, but also I'm newer to the game and newer to this conversation. So I don't know if it's just me realizing for the first time, like, oh my God, it's, it's so crazy. Um, or if like this is really unprecedented regarding what, what, what we're seeing in, in the public sphere. Well, I think there's a lot of, well, I think you could do like a long historical answer to it. I will avoid that one for today, which starts with like Reagan era politics and the Reagan Carter yeah. elections. And I think there's plenty of people who speak to that much better than I do. Yeah. However, I think that in this time, what I'm seeing is less a blatant embrace of extremism because I think that everything in like white evangelical space was already pretty extreme. What I'm seeing is a greater, a greater propensity to compromise in public. Because I think a lot of folks voted for candidates who are terrible before, like really awful. When I even think about how many passes we give George Bush for the war in Iraq, like that is some horrific, hellish stuff that Christians got behind pretty easily. Donald Trump is different because he presents front forward as immoral. And so the contradictions become more clear. But I think what happened, what I've seen happen is less that the theology has changed or the worldview has changed and more that. Christians are starting to show their hand that they actually cared less about theology and more about power. I think John MacArthur is the easiest example of that, who was full on anti-Trump until the loss of pol- the potential loss of political power yeah. made it so that he turned so quickly to be like, we need to do you know, what's in the best interest of the broader gospel. And so I think what I've seen is less of a embracing of more extremism and more a more the process of the theology coming to its logical conclusion because at yeah. some point this had yeah. to happen. Right. I guess. I mean, I didn't, I, uh, up until, uh, you know, eight years ago, I didn't think so. But then all of a sudden, like you said, you have this moment where at least for me, it's where my beliefs and my values were not aligned. Like I, I thought because mm-hmm. we shared the same belief, we had the same values, but we didn't. And that was almost like the veneer coming off for me. Right. Mm-hmm. Of like, Oh, this thing just looks and feels so pure and just and like we care about people and people first and love and empathy and grace. And then Trump happens and you're like, wait, that veneer is being ripped off. And it turns out what's what's underneath that actually is a pretty problematic structure that I just was never privy to or mm-hmm. uh, in times perhaps turned a blind eye to because I liked playing drums in the church and, you yeah. know, and doing that shit. Right. And then yep. you have this moment now where you're like, wait, but maybe maybe the the machine operates to maintain a dominant like religious um, um, dynamic in our country. Mm -hmm. And once that's even not even threatened, but once people say, well, we should give the same rights to other people outside of your group, that's then seen as a loss of privilege. And then the machine goes into action. Yes. 
And I think, honestly, I think SNL did the very best job describing what you're describing. There was this clip that they did or the skit that they did right after the 2016 election where there's all these white people at an election party. And I think it's Chris Rock and someone else are sitting like other black, other black folks are sitting on the couch and all these white people are fucking melting down around them and being like, I can't believe this would happen. I can't believe this would happen. And it's basically the black folks being like, well, duh. And so I think that what I experienced in the 2016 election was more the panic of white people realizing who they really were and who their families and communities really were more than it was a Mm. litmus test or uh, expression of change that had happened. I think people were like, how did we get here? Like, how did it get so bad? And most communities of color were like, we've been voting, we've been fighting for voting rights consistently for 60 years this isn't surprising. Like mm. white people's embrace of horrible politicians who do violence is more explicit in Donald Trump because again, he's so morally bankrupt. But the politics of the Republican Party have been morally bankrupt for a long time. When I think about the uses of phrases like the welfare queens and the mm-hmm. ways that fear-mongering have been has been at the center of the Republican Party since before McCarthyism, this is not a new iteration of anything. It's just a more extreme and upfront version that embraces the most extreme people that have been in our churches the whole time. Like when I think about how much my church loved, loved, loved guns, I'm like, oh, people were always waiting for an excuse to use their guns. We just had like a really Christian thing in front of it and we didn't have a just cause to fight for. And what I think Donald Trump did was made the culture war so significant that it made violence the natural response to defending the gospel. And so I think that that, to me, felt more clear than a lot of other things did in that time. I think with the framework I have now, you're right on the money. You know, I I don't think 2016 Tim sees it that way, right? I think he goes, what the hell's happening? We're in a crisis moment. But, you know, after doing this work for so long and just being honored to have amazing people on the podcast and also, you know, reading books, you realize like, oh, actually, um, this has been pretty much par for the course for a long time. And Trump is just the, is, is the fruit of years and years and decades of the culture war rhetoric of the, the GOP having really problematic, um, you know, uh, candidates, that kind of thing. But again, as a, as someone, especially a white male who's a Christian in America, like really, the most privilege of the privilege for so many reasons. I just never saw it that way until Trump ripped that veneer off. And I go, wait a second, guys, I thought our allegiance was to Jesus over anything. And what you're showing me is that actually this whole, this whole empire exists to continue to keep the, the status quo of, of who's really in power here, which really ties back to white supremacy. I mean, there's no, you yep. cannot get around it. And I know some nope. people get really uncomfortable when we say those two words together, but you have to be honest about our history. And the reality is white evangelicals have consistently been on the wrong side of that issue and have helped promote you know, segregation, um, Jim Crow laws, et cetera, for a very long time in the name of God. I literally have a Bob Jones sermon archived on my computer in the 1960s where he is talking about this and why it is a biblical fact. I mean, it is anyone who in his mind, he pretty much says that if you don't believe it, then you're not a real Christian and you're like a liberal. That's that's pretty much what he says. If you don't believe that God demanded the races stay separate. So this has been in the blood for a long time. Even if people like me grew up in these spaces that, Oh, we didn't see any of that. It's a fun house, but behind, you know, door number one, there's a lot of chaos and a lot of really, I would say, evil things happening but behind the scenes. Well, yeah, and I think that's why, you know, one of the primary 
pieces of white supremacy culture is individualism. And so it makes Mm. it so that churches can preach an individualistic gospel to people and say, you need to not individually compromise. And it pulls attention from the system that is consistently compromising both socially and politically Mm. to the literal death of people around them. And so as I consider all of the ways that I was taught an individualistic faith, it made engaging with those systems seem sinful or problematic, and that God gave influence to people, that God raised up Daniels in positions of power to fight the system and to do what's right, to keep God's people from compromising. And so, your job is not to be politically engaged unless it is about coming behind a leader who is fighting a culture war on behalf of, quote-unquote, us, us always being the people who are being led by the Falwells, the Pipers, the Grudems, you know, I, you can go farther back, but I think those are the names that most people would understand and have more experience with now. Yeah, no, I agree. I think with everything you're saying, let's talk for a minute because we we both share the same baptism of right wing media in our lives. You know, I have this theory. I have not come across. I'm sure there is someone in academia or somewhere that has covered this, but I I would love to see a documentary or even a book really threading the needle of how I would say the the rise of Rush Limbaugh really accelerated what was already there in some really unhealthy and problematic ways because I don't I I think a lot of people underestimate the influence and power of talk radio and of right-wing media mm-hmm. now. I mean, the, the Daily Wire, Charlie Kirk, um, all of those organizations are massive. They pretend that, that they're being victimized, even though they're actually dominating in these spaces that they exist in. They And they, they, they really do control narratives incredibly well. I mean, what they do is efficient. It's, it's effective. Mm-hmm. No one four years ago was talking about critical race theory, okay? Was not in our lives, especially what it's been made to be now, which is mm-hmm. just a catch-all term, you know? Um, or even this this term wokeism, not even a word, right? But invented by by a right-wing media conglomerate and then all of a sudden it is, is something that we have to fight against. What are your thoughts on, on the influence and effectiveness of right-wing media in these spaces when it comes to evangelicalism, you know, et cetera? Well, I mean, I think a large part of how preaching, because one of the things that I think about often is how does preaching, how is preaching used as a tool, as a political weapon, essentially? Mm -hmm. So how does the way that a pastor, so how one does any kind of expression of preaching prime people to be shaped and molded and then to feel guilty and then to feel moved toward action? It's the same techniques that are used in politics. And so I think when you find people who have grown up in Christian traditions where they've heard preaching that is persuasive, that is charismatic, not in the spiritual way, but like full of charisma, and that is fear-mongering, you prime a group of people to be moved by those things. Mm. And so I think folks like Rush Limbaugh, like Pat Oswald, like all of those folks, they have mastered a tool by osmosis, I think, and then by some kind of honing of those skills that preys on people who are already impacted by that sort of media. It's why, Mm. like, so I think about even, this is a really crass way to think about it, but I think about, like, a rom-com. Rom-coms can make you cry or make you feel something or make you feel good because they follow a pattern. Mm -hmm. Because they set up teaching in a certain way, they do homiletics in a certain way that allow you to make a point in a way that makes people feel like they need to follow what you do. Mm. So I think if you take that concept and then you couple it with the rise of folks like Rush Limbaugh and what really what I would say is the the rise of Rupert Murdoch, you mm. add money mm. to a, an emotionally manipulative form of communication. Yeah. And then you take people who are afraid and who are experiencing things like 
Vietnam who are experiencing the sexual revolution, who are yeah. seeing the world that they know fall apart around them, who are then seeing the AIDS crisis. And they're being told by these people that there's reasons for those things happening. And it's that the country is falling apart. And if yeah. the country is falling apart and you know, this is the Christian nationalism and God loves America and America is a Christian nation, then we have to do whatever we can by any means necessary, not like the Malcolm X way, but like by any <laughs> means ne- right. necessary protect this thing that God's given us to protect. Like it's our child. It's like our sheep and we're the shepherds. And so I think the combination of a specific type of spiritual persuasion plus self-proclaimed Christian leaders being given a microphone in right-wing media spaces because folks like Murdoch have really cracked the code on how to monetize fear and really gossip. Uh, I don't mean gossip in like the don't gossip church way. I mean like gossip, like tabloids that, the right-wing media has framed people as a threat to everyone else's well-being. And so if you're not a part of the in-group, you're out. And we're herd, right? We're herd animals. And so if we feel like we are threatened and afraid, our fight or flight reflexes is, is triggered and we will do whatever we can to survive. And so I think a lot of white evangelical Christianity is actually in a perpetual state of fight or flight because of their adherence to Christian right-wing media. Yeah. Or rather Christianized right-wing media. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I yeah, no, I, I think about people in my own life who, you know, still listen to it and just how they function and how they see the world. And it is very much a, at any minute, you know, Joe Biden, who apparently can't talk and can't walk straight, will kick down my door, take my guns and my Bible and throw me in jail. Uh, and, you know, it's like this weird combination of, oh, uh, you know, Democrats are so weak and pathetic, but also they're one day away from destroying everything that we know and love. I mean, I'll never forget for me personally, one of the moments that has always stood out to me was when when uh, Obama got elected during his first term. And I was still, you know, I voted, like you said, I voted for McCain and everything, the whole nine. And I remember Glenn Beck crying on the radio, legitimate tears coming down his face, saying that that he is concerned that America will not be here next year, that he's so concerned that the country is going to physically be dismantled and that it's the end of America as we know it, right? And that always stood out to me because here we are now, almost, you know, however many years later, decades later, and 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 it's laughable because mm-hmm. of like, A, uh, the, the limits of power, thank God that a president can't be a tyrant uh, for now, um, but also true. because, you know, of just of, of, of the of the hyperbole that was that was taken literally by millions of people who did everything they can or, or could to destroy um, a president who, my gosh, I miss Obama. Damn it. I miss Absolutely. that. I see him talking. I'm like, I miss I miss the way you talk. I miss the way you communicate. Absolutely. I miss everything about you, Obama. And you're yeah. a good husband and a good father. Yeah, God but- damn it. You know, yeah. um, so I just feel like, you know, given the hindsight, it's like, wow, the theatrics are on display every day like that for talk radio. Mm-hmm. But they will never because it makes them a lot of money. They can never concede that maybe they were exaggerating. Maybe the sky isn't falling like how they say it's going to fall, right? Uh, And it it is very infuriating to see now on this end of it. Yes. And what you're describing is propaganda. Yeah. That the right-wing media machine is a propaganda machine. Yeah. And I'm not going to say like, I would say, I wouldn't say the left wing because the the left doesn't really have a propaganda machine in the same way. I mean, maybe the Young Turks sometimes, maybe. I mean, even then, that's a real stretch, I think, you know. Sometimes Rachel Maddow gets really (laughs) mad, you know. (laughs) 
right. But the right wing does have a propaganda machine that is well funded and that uses the same tools that Christian preachers have used to scare people into their churches and into the quote unquote kingdom of God yeah. in the same way, but scare them into the Republican Party. Yeah. And then once you scare people into the Republican Party, you intertwine being Republican with being Christian which makes everything a fear experience. So like I this is a, a silly example, but I went to a wedding of one of my closest childhood friends and I don't have that many friends from my hometown and my old youth pastor and his wife were there. Mm. And she was sitting next to me at the wedding cuz her husband was performing the wedding. And she said to me, "Oh, where do you live now?" And I said, "Oh, I live in Seattle." And she goes, "Ooh, scary." And I was like, "What?" She was like, "Yeah, that's really scary." And I was like, "Oh, because in 2020, we had Chaz, this like free love multi-block takeover that had like one person get shot in it after like being there for months and months and months. But the right-wing media had framed it as Antifa, Antifa has taken over Portland yeah. and Seattle and it's totally chaos there. And I would like go over there and be yeah. like, people are literally sidewalk chalking and giving free meals away. But because the propaganda machine assumes that if you are gay, if you are queer in any right. way, if you right. are not working in the same kind of like coal mine mentality that your great, great grandpa did, right. then you are a liberal and being a liberal means that you're ruining the country. And that is the real violence. And so yes. it doesn't matter what happens in our violence, in our protection of gun rights and all of that stuff, yes. mass shootings, all of that. It's you're doing the real violence because it's violence to the gospel. And so, Ooh, Seattle's so scary. And I was like, Oh yeah. I remember what this feels like and how we need in particularly in right-wing media, a perpetual enemy. Yes. There always has to be an enemy, a person you're aiming at that's stealing from you. That's that's the, right. It, it's the enemy comes to seek, kill and destroy. And you're like, yeah. oh yeah, the, yeah. the, the Democrats are coming in Arizona to seek, kill and destroy Carrie Lake from being the governor. And so right. the same right. propaganda gets lived out in the, in political spaces and in religious spaces. And once you start to clock the similarities, yes. it's really easy to see how they're pulling strings to keep people afraid and therefore politically motivated. No, this is such a great point, and we could be here for a lot longer because the boogeyman mentality is very real. There's always yeah. something to be afraid of that's threatening your way of life immediately. Like you have yep. days, maybe hours before a drag queen kicks down your door and whatever they call grooming your children is, which is again, like I know it, it's incredibly dehumanizing. It causes mm -hmm. violence towards um, 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 groups who are a, min a minority or who are not understood. Uh, and, and, and what it does is it also, may we add, it distracts from the real problems the country is facing, right? Mm -hmm. The wealth inequality that we have, the, the billionaire class that is continuing sucking up wealth, the corporate corporations, honestly, who are who control so much, uh, mass incarceration or education problems, because they are such a loud squeaky wheel, but we, I, as a content creator, have to tell people why drag queens are not your greatest threat. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. I don't care yeah. about drag queen story hour. I'm sorry. I don't. You want to bring your kid there? Great. If you don't, no problem. They can exist. It's not a big deal. But because of right-wing propaganda, I have to tell people, no, real grooming is when John MacArthur hires three pedophiles files on his staff and doesn't and doesn't and covers it up not when you in a public scenario situation bring your child chaperoned to watch someone read your kid a story that's not what grooming is you know yep. but they control these narratives so efficiently that you're stuck in these spaces 
that you don't want to have to talk about because they're so inconsequential in, in so many ways. I'm not talking about um, mm-hmm. what I'm not trying to say is is that the rhetoric doesn't have consequences. It absolutely does. But I'm saying as far as like as a country, you know what we have to, what, what we have to fight for real, right? Like <laughs> the battles that we have to actually pick. Instead, we have to defend communities who are under attack. Um, because right wing media needs a boogeyman to always demonize who the white suburban mom or the whoever, you know, the 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 white blue collar dad can say, oh, yeah, I don't because I don't understand it. I'm taught to fear it. And that's mm-hmm. what, and honestly, in my view, I, I, I would love your thoughts. And I'm kind of ranting here, but I do find um I find that there is a difference between the person in the in the pew who just is trying to live their life and doesn't know better versus the leaders who actually indoctrinate these people with these perspectives, yeah. right? I tend to have a lot more empathy for the folks in the pew who just thinks this is how reality is because of what they hear versus the Rush Limbaugh's of the world who know exactly what they're doing uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and are just espousing blatant propaganda. I mean, I agree. I It makes sense to me why normal everyday people who are struggling just to survive each day yeah. would be moved by narratives that tell them that there's a reason for their suffering. Right. And right, those Christians do this in our theology. We say there's a reason for your suffering. It's the curse of Adam. It's original sin. And Jesus is here to bring us toward a new life where the things that people messed up in the beginning get to be made better. So there's a reason for your suffering and it's sin. And then if you live a certain way, you're going to be drawn into something that is more life-giving good, even if it's not really good right now and you can't see any tangible implications of that goodness. The right-wing media machine does the same thing. It says there's a reason for your suffering and it's those people over there. It's Democrats, it's progressives, it's queer folks, it's trans folks, it's drag queens. And if you do the right things, if you, and then this situation, the right thing is voting or posting on Facebook, apparently. Like if you do those things, then you are going to fight the good fight, even if the government that you are following doesn't tangibly do anything to change your life or make you feel better. Because what both of those things do is they give you an in group that allows you to be accepted. And I think that so much of the issues that we have in politics can be boiled down to particularly white evangelicals not understanding in any true way belonging. Like, what does it mean Mm. to belong to a community of people where you do not have to, you know, more of him, less of me, make me perfect like my heavenly father is perfect, make me into a little clone of Jesus so I'm not myself anymore because I'm so wicked and deceitful. Yeah. And so it's change yourself under an authority figure so that the world can someday be better, even if you'll never see it. And so I think that the the tracks of white white evangelical theology and right-wing politics use the same tools and mechanisms to create similar consequences for people who are just trying to make it on a daily basis, but are being preyed upon by that kind of right-wing media machine. Sheesh, you know, it's just so evident um, that 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 you're a passionate about this, but b you study it so well because, yeah, I mean, you, you just put it in in you just really nailed it. I think in in so many ways that even for me have just helped me make sense of like some of these connections between the evangelical culture and like their theology and this right wing media machine. Because you're right, like they really, man, they are just in lockstep with each other time and time again, mm-hmm. um, and it, it it causes a lot of harm. My last question to you, and I appreciate you taking you know almost an hour with me, Brandy. I I, I can't. I can't thank you enough for your time and, and your wisdom here because it's just so helpful. But where I get stuck, and again, I love your perspective on this, is 
on one hand, I have like this fire in my belly, you know, hell no. I, I almost, I view the work that I do as part of my repentance for my, I would say unintentional, but still complicity in these very toxic systems. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay, I want to be part of the change. I want to, I want to go the other way, so to speak. So I do have a, uh, a fire of like, this is bullshit. We should be angry. We should resist. At the same time, like you said, I, I, my views and my theology and my Tim, who I am, was changed by persuasion, by loving relationships, mm-hmm. by people who held space for me. And, and there's this tension that I find of, I'm either trying to do that and folks who are marginalized by the evangelical church are experiencing some level of harm. Or I'm prioritizing those voices of the folks marginalized by the evangelical church and the people who I'm trying to hopefully maybe persuade are like, you're a progressive Marxist, socialist, godless communist. So I'm like, dang it. Like, I'm, I swear I'm really not. But because I'm, I'm prioritizing these voices, you can only fill in the blanks with right-wing media talking points. So for yeah. you, how do you... Where, where do you live in that tension for you of like, yeah, we, we should do our best to persuade, you know, and, and to be loving, and empathetic and hold space. But also like when it, when push comes to shove, voting rights and, and, the, and the communities who don't have those, we have to advocate for them and say, no, this isn't okay. We have to change things. What do you do with that? Mm-hmm. You have two minutes. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I can probably be quicker than that. No, okay. it's, it's hard because like, I think to answer this question in some ways is to talk shit about the work that both you and I do, Ooh. which is that I think justice is not a work of persuasion. It's a work of local justice. Mm. And so I think that many people, and this bothers me a lot, yeah. who are content creators or who are influencing online in any way often have no local manifestation of their work on the ground. Yeah. They talk and talk and talk and watch a ton of media and do not have connection to people on the ground or know what's happening in their local community. Yeah. And in the same way, I, you know, I, I'll quote scripture a little bit here in, or paraphrase scripture rather, but it's like, if you can't love God, like if you can't love your neighbor who you can see, how can you love God who you cannot see? Mm. And I think many of us think we're loving our neighbor through doing persuasion work. Yeah. But persuasion work is the very reason we dislike the right wing media machine because it is disembodied, because it is separate from the people. And so I think persuasion without local manifestations of that kind of persuasion work that we're doing is just propaganda. And so for me, I decided to start working at a local church, which I didn't think I would ever work for Christianity in a formal way again, but I work at a church because like, I don't need the money. I don't need to do that. But I work at the church because I need to know who I'm talking to. I need to know the implications of my theology on my city and in my neighborhood and in how I see the people that are coming to our church every day. And so my work now is less concerned with convincing other people who are already persuaded of their own worldview of something else, but rather being involved in a local community that is meeting the needs of people who are struggling. And I think even as I look at this, these midterms that are just wrapping, you know, there are all of these ways that a lot of conservative people voted against extremist Republican politicians because local leaders, representatives, governors were fighting for their actual needs, Medicare and Medicaid specifically. Mm. And so I think that as I look at that, I'm just, I just feel like there's a pull for many of us who see ourselves as persuasion leaders, content creators, doing theology to be more and more on the ground and to be more and more politically involved 
because it actually shapes the lives of people around us outside of the mental, intellectual, I'm right, you're wrong. We become a different type of fundamentalist, right. even though we say we hate fundamentalism. <laughs> exactly. And so for me, again, I don't want to like talk shit about our work, but I do think there's a way that if it's not super grounded in reality, in the reality of our communities, then it's dead and worthless to me. Listen, I, I, I a thousand percent agree. It's something I've been thinking about for quite a few months now of just like, yeah, who are my actual neighbors? And, and that's kind of like hypocritical. And listen, I think, I think part of, of, of what makes us hopefully not becoming fundamentalists is that we're able to critique ourselves and say, yeah, there is some bullshit here, right? Like, yeah. Um, you know, ultimately does me spending two hours making a reel, uh, really, really have the impact that it needs to have versus like, you know, meeting folks in my community or the pastor down the street who I've yet to meet, right? Like what really matters here? So we have to be willing to, to self-reflect and correct. Um, and I, I think your I think your critique honestly is incredibly valid. So that being said, Brandy, you know, I really appreciate you making time. I know I said it several times, but I, I I'm sincere in that. Like it means a lot. I know you're busy. Um, where can folks find you? Are are you only on the podcast? Do you exist anywhere online or in your local community? <laughs> <laughs> you know, most of my, my, my personal Instagram is mostly competitive weightlifting. So it's not actually that um, exciting in terms of uh, theological prowess or whatever. My focus right now is the podcast. We're currently in a season on purity culture, trying Ooh. to have a more broad conversation about purity culture that doesn't center white women. And so asking how can all of us be free of sexual shame? Uh, how can we reform sexual ethics and do that through the lens of understanding white supremacy, purity culture, or, or white supremacy, patriarchy, homophobia, and the like. And so the podcast is the best place you can find me. Uh, we did a whole season on reclaiming our theology from white supremacy, where we, what we try to do at the podcast is to make, what, you know, whatever you want to call it, the deconstruction, the relearning process, all of that, less intuitive and more practical, because mm. so many of us feel lost in yep. where to go because there isn't a pathway. And so we offer one path. There's so many paths to liberation and the podcast is one way that I'm trying to create a path for folks who are interested to start to walk away from the ideologies that they've been given without walking away from their faith or Jesus entirely. So the yeah. podcast is the best place to find me, but I'm out here floating around on the internet, maybe for maybe on Twitter for another four days. But we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll see. Well, I'll have to pick your brain on, uh, on on weightlifting because my squat form is horrible. I hate squats. I'm terrible at squats, <laughs> even though I'm a big guy. So I'm six four, about two hundred eighty pounds. And I have like these like massive like Greek thighs that look weight really impressive, but when it comes down to it. I'm a pipsqueak. I'm a total pipsqueak. So I'm ready to pick your brain. That's so funny. <laughs> feel free to feel free to shoot me a video. I can do that because I'm about five five and two hundred pounds and uh do not have the legs of a Greek god, but can move a lot of weight. <laughs> I saw on your Instagram, I was doing some research. I'm like, damn, Brandy, I love it. So uh, again, Brandy, it was great talking to you. Keep in touch. I'm sure we'll do it again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Tim. always see bad weather coming, so it's essential that you're able to see through it when you drive. Michelin wiper blades with advanced technology hug your windshield like a Michelin tire hugs the road, channeling away water, snow, and ice so you can see clearly, drive confidently, and breathe easy. Michelin wiper performance, clearer than ever. Upgrade to Michelin premium wipers today at Walmart, Amazon, and other fine retailers.